Would you say you have a high-functioning team working at your church? Lance Witt is our guest this week discussing how pastors can work to build an incredible team and how they should respond when they find their team is dysfunctional. It's all in episode 62 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Thanks for tuning in to episode 62 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week's episode is sponsored by Ministry U. It's our new online learning platform for pastors and ministry leaders featuring video tutorials and downloadable tools and resources, all designed to give you practical ministry leadership skills. So head on over to ministryu.com and sign up today. This week, we're talking to Lance Witt. Lance has been called the pastor's pastor. He loves to serve those on the front lines of ministry and is committed to helping them stay healthy and finish well. He has over 30 years of ministry experience, including serving as an executive pastor at Saddleback Church. He has a broad spectrum of ministry experience. His strategic thinking gifts and passion were why we wanted to have him on the show this week. And so now, here's our conversation with Lance Witt. Well, Lance, it is great to have you here on the Churchlers podcast, and you're here in studio. I love live interviews, and so thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Andrew. I love being with you guys, love outreach, and of course, it's just a short drive for me down from Castle Rock, so fun to be with you in person. Yeah, and one of the things we wanted to talk to you today about is a lot of pastors and ministry leaders write to us, and they tell us that they struggle with creating the right team in their church. A lot of pastors inherit teams or they feel like they're not really a part of building teams. And so I wanted to talk to you because you've done so much in helping pastors and leaders build high functioning teams. And so kind of as we start, tell us how you began to do that work. Like how did you, how did God lead you into this work of helping churches have strong teams? Well, I I think the first part of it is I just had my own journey with teams myself. You know, I mean, all of us have been on various teams. I've been on some great teams. And I think when you've been on a great team, it's an incredible gift. But I've also been on some very dysfunctional teams. And so I think for me, it's come out of my own journey of, so what does it look like to lead a team and understanding that it's so important to um, the accomplishment of the vision for us to have not just a team that gets along, but a team that's actually in their sweet spot and getting stuff done and making progress. And so after 30 plus years of local church ministry, I started a ministry called Replenish that really kind of focuses on the soul side of leadership. And so I've been working with teams and pastors around the country, um, helping them with this various issue. So Mm -hmm. I've been doing it for 30 years, but really for the last 10, it's really been kind of the core of what I've been doing. Hmm. And so do you go into churches and kind of get to know the team and kind of then tell them, okay, here's here's how to get from where you are to where you want to be? Yeah, I think uh, I would not describe myself as kind of the typical consultant who kind of swoops in, assesses the situation, gives the advice, and then leaves. I'm a more relational person. So a lot of the churches I work with, I actually work with over a long period of time. And so I get to know the team. I understand kind of what's going on behind the scenes, some of the skeletons that are in the closet. And so through that relationship, I think I've earned the right then to sort of speak into how they do team, how they structure their church, where some of the problems are that they might need to address. Yeah. Are there are there some problems that you see over and over, like some, some main ones that strike to your mind? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I think one of them is that... Uh, 
Churches often are notorious about not being able to deal with conflict very well. My experience for me personally, and most leaders and pastors I know is, um, we kind of are people pleasers. We are nice. We're caring. We're shepherds. Uh, we don't like to have the hard conversations. That's really difficult for us. And so we avoid it like the plague. And sometimes I kiddingly say that in the church, we suffer from a disease called terminal niceness. We we're kind, we're diplomatic, we're easygoing, we're caring. And when you're wired like that, having hard conversations is really tough. Um, so I think that's a big issue. I, I would say another big issue, honestly, is people who aren't in the right spot on the bus. You know, um, you hire someone and often we hire too quickly. And then we soon discover that actually the person's not a great fit for the role and they're not performing and so then we have to deal with that issue of, okay, how do we help someone transition off of the team who really isn't in the right spot? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so as you, as you go in there then, so are you primarily working with the, the senior pastor as he leads the team, or do you kind of meet with everybody and, and kind of get a sense of the dynamics? Yeah, I'd say the majority of it is with senior leadership, whether it's the lead pastor or maybe his executive team, if it's a church that's larger um, but I also have to get to know the team, uh, spend time with department heads or someone who's a volunteer leader in an area before I can accurately assess what's going on and then maybe give some recommendations to the senior leadership. Mm -hmm. And it seems like one of the things that would, would change the dynamic is for people that a lot of times when you hear about leadership and people talking about team, like working with teams, it's in the context of business where everybody is trying to work towards the same bottom line of profitability. When you're in ministry and there's not necessarily this, I mean, there's definitely a stewardship component, but you're not, at the end of the day, you're not trying to make money. Does that change the dynamic? Absolutely. It, it, it makes it softer in terms of what we're trying to measure. When you, you talk about making disciples or spiritual transformation or people coming closer to Christ, that's just more difficult to measure. But I think we still have to keep putting out there that the end game for us is making disciples and evaluating are the things that we're doing and the programs that we have and the services that we conduct, are they moving people toward, you know, becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? And so it is a softer measurement, but I think churches got to have to wrestle with that and go, how do we know if we're succeeding? How, if we actually made a disciple, how would we know it? What's our strategy for making disciples? And are we prioritizing our time to actually get that done? Yeah, that's really good. I think having those success metrics in place. So, so for a church that might, like pastor that might be listening to this and he's thinking through, man, we don't do anything like that. We, don't, we wouldn't know if we made a disciple or what that would look like. How, what are some things that you, like some benchmarks that you might encourage them to put in place that would help them take steps towards having those metrics? Yeah, I think one is for you to wrestle biblically with what does a disciple look like? What would be some of the characteristics? In some ways, I think about this sort of like raising children. Like, you know, what, what would be the markers of a whole, well-adjusted, mature child that you release out of your home? What would be some of the characteristics that you would want in their life? And I would say, we need to do the same thing. We want to produce people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. We want to produce people who have godly marriages, who manage their finances well. And so I think those are some of the kinds of 
characteristics of a fully devoted disciple. And then we need to ask, what are our strategies to help our congregation and our people move in that direction? Through our weekend services, through our small groups, through our student programs, children's ministry. And, um, you know, I think sometimes because of the press of time, we just plug in programs and we don't always ask, what's the fruit of that program? And is that program helping our people move toward that goal of really becoming a disciple? Mm-hmm. And then how, like, I love that of, of thinking about what's our goal and then holding the team accountable to, did we actually achieve our goal? But how do you, how do you do that in a ministry context? Because it seems like there's a, there's, it would just be hard for you to come to somebody on the staff and say, Hey, we set the goal of making a hundred disciples and we only made three. Um, and in kind of where, where, so how can a pastor who's listening to this hold his staff accountable to some of these metrics? Yeah. I, and I don't think it's as simple as saying, oh, we have a goal of making a hundred disciples. Um, I think, for example, if it's student ministry, you're saying, okay, we want to, you know, maybe we have a goal of seeing a certain number of kids come to Christ. And then here's the methods, the strategies that we're going to use to, to move. And for me, it's not about the end result of like, oh, okay, we, we finished producing disciples because we never arrive in this life. But the question is, are we making progress? And, and I think to have the conversation of like, what would it look like in student ministry for that to happen? Like we have our worship services, but then what's after that? Like what are next steps that maybe students could take or parents could take with their students to help them move in that direction? And so I think it's much more about progress than it is about destination. Mm. And I think, again, for me, it's about having that conversation with that staff member and then establishing their priorities. Like we've said that for us, a student service is, is critical. We've said for us that maybe, you know, youth small groups is critical, but we don't just care about having the groups. We care about what goes on in the groups. And then I'm going to hold that staff member accountable to making progress with those strategies toward making disciples. Mm-hmm. Another thing I know a lot of pastors um, and, and just church staff struggle with is feeling like they're siloed in ministry. So you have the the youth pastor running in a direction, you have the children's workers running in a certain direction, and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. How can you create a team where everybody works together and everybody shares in each other's successes? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think the first thing is having a really clear vision that everybody buys into. And so that the vision isn't just for adults, but the vision really translates to every, you know, so if we have a vision for really impacting our region, we want to have our children's ministry in conversation about how they tie into that. And so that everybody's piece fits into the overall vision. And I think then also much of this has to do with the kind of culture that we create. And we create a culture where a win for the whole is what really matters. And if you win in your department and your department's doing well, but others really aren't, we're looking at it more as the whole than just my individual area. And so I think as a leader, I've got to create a culture where we kind of say to each other, hey, we want to be unselfish. And whatever you can do to help another team succeed, that's a win. I think another big issue for breaking down silos is building relationships within the church so that if I'm the student pastor that, you know, I maybe grab coffee with the worship pastor 
or if I'm over small groups, that I'm spending some time with children's ministry and asking them the question, how could I serve you? What resources could I put in your hands to help you guys do small groups better within children's ministry? And so I think it's that kind of unselfish spirit that really does help a lot. But I think as the leader, you've got to take responsibility for creating a culture that breaks down silos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as the leader is reaching out to his staff, like I think on a staff, you might have times where you notice that there isn't a lot of cross-pollination and and maybe even people aren't getting along well together. As the senior pastor, how do you work to kind of maybe take care of some of these relational conflicts that, that you see popping up and, and enforce people to kind of work through it instead of just it? Because I think that that niceness term you use where it's like, oh, we just won't talk to each other. That will be the way we handle it instead of, no, let's really work through some of this tension and, and maybe have a stronger connection because of it. Yeah, I think there's a couple of issues here. I think one of them is we need to, be- to do a better job of actually teaching people how to deal with conflict so that we actually walk them through, you know, the process of when a situation comes up, a relational conflict, here's how we handle this. This is the, you know, sort of Matthew 18 and we sit down in person. We don't gossip about it. We don't go to somebody else. We actually learn the skill and discipline of sitting down and then doing it in a way that models both truth and grace. So, I think some of this is actually about giving people practical handles of how you sit down and work through a problem together. Because in the church, my experience is we just avoid it. We sweep it under the rug. We pretend it's not there, but it still exists and it's dysfunctional and it creates division in the team. And so I think this is one of the hardest things to go after in the church. But I think as leaders, I have to model it first. I have to teach people and then give them some practical handles. But here's another issue. I think we have to teach people more about their own emotional health. That sometimes what's causing the dysfunction is an issue of insecurity or something, a pain I have in my past from a a past experience or maybe my family of origin that's been kind of a blind spot for me, but it keeps being a landmine in my team environment. And so I think as people become more self-aware of their own emotions and some of the broken places inside of them, we can begin to deal with some of the dysfunction within the team. And how, how do we do that? I mean, if, if you, if somebody's listening right now and they're like, man, I, I, you could be describing me, how would I, how would I go about finding out what are the things in my heart that may be keeping me from being a good team player? Yeah. And I'd say first off is to just make the commitment to become a student of your own soul. Um, I think in church life, we are so focused on externals and growing our church and expanding our ministries and accomplishing and preaching sermons that I don't often pay attention to like, so what's happening inside of me? So I think first off is just sort of making that commitment to turn your focus a little bit inward. And then for me, honestly, Andrew, a lot of it has been just beginning to read books that have really taken me to more of an inward journey than just focusing on my outward kind of tasks and responsibilities. So things like I I think of like Ruth Haley Barton's book, strengthening the soul of your leadership, extremely helpful. Um, I would encourage everybody I know to read Pete Scazzaro's material, emotionally healthy spirituality and emotionally healthy leadership. You know, I have a book that I wrote called replenish that 
talks a lot about my own journey and sort of my self-discovery process of dealing with some of my, you know, broken places internally. And so I think some books like that, that just help explore again, from a, a, a very solid theological, biblical perspective, sort of what's going on inside of me. And, and one of the things I often teach people is that you need to remember that your soul is the real you, you know, your body and all your external stuff, that's the temporary part, but the, the soul is the real you. And so you need to learn how to pay attention to that. And so I'll give you one example for me, Andrew, is um, I've always been a kind of type A driven personality, high achieving. It's sort of built into my DNA, but I think it's also part of the script I have from my past, which was the way that you get ahead and the way that you get loved is that you work hard, you be responsible, you do good, and that's how people love you, you know? Well, so I've always had this drivenness in my life. And I always tried to deal with my drivenness by tweaking my schedule, thinking if I could just work smarter, I could get all my to-do list done, plus live out my priorities. And I remember there was this one day when it was like the Holy Spirit just said to me, so Lance, why are you so driven? What's behind that? What's behind the compulsive busyness? And why do you care so much what everybody thinks about you? Let's talk about that. And that took me from the place of, instead of thinking this was a calendaring or scheduling issue, this was an internal soul issue that I had to begin to address. And I think a lot of leaders could get a lot healthier if they would kind of go on a similar journey. Well, and it seems like in order to do what you're talking about, we have to be we have to be cultivating these these quiet times where we're thinking about how is it how is it going with my soul how am i doing what are the things that are showing up what are patterns that that you just need to sit and think about and pray through and and just do some self assessment i feel like most leaders are so busy that if we said you really need to do that they would be like when when would i ever have time to do like to, and and really to see that that's actually an important part of your work Absolutely. And I, I think um, you're spot on. And I think for some of us, honestly, part of what masks our emotional unhealthiness is we cover it with busyness. And again, I think for too many of us, we find our sense of identity and significance in our busyness and in what we do. And the truth is, and I did this for many years, kind of wear my busyness as a badge of honor, because here's the lie I think that sometimes we believe. Busy people are important people. But if I'm going to lead a team well, I have to take care of my own soul. And part of that means I need time for rest, time for reflection, time for thinking, time for space. You know, one of the things that I teach in my ministry replenishes, you can't live life at warp speed without warping your soul. And you can't follow Jesus in a hurry. And I think Jesus modeled this so well for us. I you know, I've often said with leaders, you know, if Jesus were to come and sit down with a group of pastors and he were to say to them, hey, I've only got three years to launch my public ministry. What should I do? And we would give him advice like, well, you got to get the right domain site. You need to get a Twitter account, a Facebook fan page. You got to hit the speaking circuit. And yet when I look at the life of Jesus, he did it so differently. He regularly pulled aside, even though he only had three short years, he regularly pulled aside for quiet and reflection and to be with his father. Mm. I love that because I think, I think it does change the way we think of, of our quiet time, our devotional life. 
it's possible even as leaders to like, oh, my quiet time is I pray through this and I read through this and then I read, you know, these five devotionals and, and you can, you can really just be in the same productivity track even in that time you set apart. And so how do leaders kind of create that space and, and maybe give themselves permission to just sit and quietly reflect? Yeah, I think that's great. I, and I think it is true that for a lot of us, our quiet time is nothing more than just another piece of our to-do list. And so I, I think for me, one of the biggest things, honestly, has been learning to spend my time with the Lord more relationally and less informationally. So I think I, I often went to the Bible to either get a talk or to say I had my quiet time for the day or whatever. And I have in recent years, and again, I think it's a problem for us as pastors because we're, we're biblically trained and we don't often come to Scripture thinking about the fact that I'm meeting with a person. And that means I should take time to listen, to sit quietly, I've been changing even how I read scripture uh, to read more for depth rather than breadth, rather than reading through three chapters, maybe just sitting with a few verses. And even when I start my quiet time to just say, Lord, I want to meet with you today. I want you to speak to me personally, and I want you to give something for my soul, not just something that I can do or talk on. And so, um, and then I think a big piece for me, Andrew, has been learning to slow down my internal RPMs. When I came out of Saddleback, I, I was not in a very healthy place. I, um, it was a very kind of high demand, fast paced, high change environment. And I, you know, being a driven person, I was like the alcoholic working in a bar. And so when I began to learn to practice solitude and silence and Sabbath, it was really a struggle for me because even when I tried to slow down on the outside internally, my RPMs were still racing and it's taken me time to begin to just slow down my soul where I can just be with Jesus and not have to do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think Sabbath is one of those things that for pastors is really hard. Even when they have a day off, sometimes it's not a true day off. So when you use that term Sabbath, what is, what does Sabbath mean to you as yeah. you've been practicing it? Well, it means something quite different than a day off. I think one pastors need to wrestle with this biblically because here's my, my conviction. If you don't wrestle with really what you believe about this biblically and theologically, the busyness of ministry will always win the day. And so you have to put a stake in the ground that says the rhythm. And this is what I think Sabbath is about. God established a rhythm for life and a rhythm that he wants for every one of us. It's in the DNA of the universe. And the rhythm is work and rest produce and then recover and restore in Leviticus 24 God said every, every seven years I want you to give the physical dirt a Sabbath because nothing was meant to give out all of the time and I think as pastors one of our greatest sins is we live as though we have no limits and we live as though we're exempt from that that rhythm and working with high capacity leaders who often are on the path to burnout I'll say to them, if you violate this long enough, you will pay a tremendous price. You'll do damage to your body, your soul, your emotions. And so I have been in these last few years trying to learn to practice Sabbath. So and I, it's one day a week. I have it on my calendar. Um, if you were to look at my calendar for the next year out, it's on there. And it's in, and on my calendar, it says Sabbath, doesn't say day off. Because I think Sabbath is largely about stopping 
resting, delighting, which is doing things that fill me up and fill up my soul. It's about worship. And so it's those things that really define Sabbath, which is different than a day off where I just catch up on all the things I didn't get to do when I was working all week. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And I think, I think that's really valuable is, is learning to keep Sabbath. Are there people that, that you've read or that have influenced you that you thought, man, I know Eugene Peterson has written a lot about soul keeping. Is, is there other others that you would, maybe a book that you'd recommend to somebody who's like, man, I really need to, to yeah. learn more what, about Ab- what Lance absolutely. is talking about? Um, so probably Mark Buchanan's book, The Rest of God, is actually a really good uh, read. And then a lady by the name of Lynn Babb uh, has written a small book on the Sabbath that I really like. Um, Pete Scazzaro talks about that in both Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and um, Emotionally Healthy Leadership. So I think those would be good places for people to start um, to really, uh, first off, but I would encourage you, wrestle with this in terms of what you believe about it theologically. And then, then you can move to the practical side, but don't just start with, okay, I'm going to, you know, practice this. And what are the the practical realities? Because my experience is busyness always wins Mm -hmm. unless you have a real conviction about this. Lance, one thing I wanted to to ask you about as well, when a, when a pastor is leading a staff and, and they realize they come to this point where it's like, wow, somebody, on the staff is, is underperforming. They're not taking the, the advice that you're giving them. How do you know when it's time to make a separation and how do you do that in a church where it doesn't you know, kind of have a ripple effects through the team? I'd say the single biggest mistake I see in this particular area, Andrew, is that we see an underperforming team member and we, we just kind of watch it and we watch it and we watch it and we don't do anything about it. And then we finally just can't take it anymore or the situation is bad enough and we finally deal with it and the person is completely surprised and caught off guard. And so I think the first step is that when I as a supervisor have an underperforming staff member that I begin to have early conversations with them when I begin to see those issues. And so I want to sit down and have a conversation. And, um, you know, sometimes churches have an annual performance review And I see the value of that, but often it feels like an IRS audit. Like we haven't talked all year and now I get the big formal review with the white paper and something's going to go in my file and it just feels awkward. And I'm a big fan of once a quarter, just sit down with a person that you're leading and just have a conversation around what's working, what's not going well, where do you see them underperforming, celebrate where they're doing well, but get people aware if they're underperforming more quickly than what often happens in the church. And then I think if it continues to to deteriorate and they're underperforming, then you need to have what I call the shot across the bow conversation. And the shot across the bow is, hey, this isn't working. And now I'm actually putting you on a growth plan and a performance plan, and you have three months or four months or whatever it is to kind of turn this around. And if you can't, then we're going to need to make a change. So you're giving them that sort of, okay, this is serious. This, your job is on the line and there needs to be some improvement or you're not going to be able to stay. And then I think if it continues to not work, then I think you, you sit down and you have the, the conversation of again, but here's the point. We've now been th- working through this for maybe several months and now it's the time to sit down and have the conversation about you know, we're going to need to separate and 
uh, let them go. And I'm, I'm a big fan of being generous toward people on their way out. When you have to make the hard decision to let someone go, again, hopefully you've treated them honorably all the way through. Um, it's not a surprise to them. But then, because you are messing with their life, be gracious when you think about their transition, whether that's covering insurance, whether that's a severance package, then, you know, I think just be gracious. And I think it's one of the things that we can do in the church. And a lot of people would go, well, yeah, that doesn't happen in the business world, but that doesn't mean that's how we have to do it in the church. Mm. And I think we always want to try to be gracious wherever we can when we end up having to let someone go. That's really good. And I think that's something that a lot of pastors really, really wrestle with. And I love that idea of, of being gracious and kind and, and I think communicating um, along the way. Then after that person leaves, uh, there's a temptation on staff for, you know, people like, what just happened? Why that happened? How do you then address the staff and, and let them know what happened? But also, yeah, I just feel like that, that could be a. Yeah, the, the communication of this is critical. And so my feeling is you never want to spin the communication, but you want to practice what I would call appropriate disclosure. Like staff don't need to know all the details. But the tr- but they need to know something, and they need to know kind of generally what's happened. And so um, there's a guy by the name of Michael Abrashoff who wrote a great leadership book called It's Your Ship. And he was like a four-star admiral in the Navy, and it was a bunch of leadership lessons he learned in running a battle fleet. And I'll never forget one of the statements he made is, your people always know the score even when you don't want them to. And I think he's so right that people, they know what's going on. They're smart. They can connect the dots. And I've been in environments where someone got let go or there was a staff transition and the leader stood up and basically kind of spun the communication and everybody sitting in the room knew that that wasn't really the story. And I think when we do that, we end up undermining our own credibility and leadership. So I'm a big fan of let's be honest. We don't have to tell them everything, but whatever we do say It needs to be honest. And so I'd say two words for pastors when you're communicating to your staff about some transition is the word honest and the word honorable. Want to be truthful, but also want to be honorable and not in any way throw the other person under the bus. Uh, I I would love for the the people on my staff to still have a friendship with that person that we had to let go. That's really good. Lance, so much much wisdom, so many things that uh, thanks for all your great answers. Like I know I kind of like hit a lot of topics. That's fine. I know that you, you have a new class coming out with ministry. You, um, where you go into some of these topics in more depth. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that course and, and what pastors that are listening could get from taking that? Yeah. So it's called healthy or building healthy and high performing teams. And my experience is that, um, pastors tend to kind of lean one way or the other in this discussion. The pastor who's very caring and pastoral and nurturing tends to build a healthy team. He, he cares about his team. He, he invests in his team. He, uh, you know, personally spends time with his team, you know, but maybe they don't focus much on being productive and actually getting stuff done. Or there are some, they're type A leaders. They read every leadership book that there is out there. They're all about the mission and the vision but man, it's not much fun to work for them and the team isn't very healthy. And so this course really does try to bring together how do we create a healthy team 
that has a sense of family where we love one another and really like coming to work and we have good relational skills. But man, we get a lot done for the kingdom of God. And we have clear priorities and job descriptions and we get people in the right seat on the bus and we create the right culture that really does help us accomplish our vision. And so I think pastors who uh, would engage this series would find some really practical help for helping them move their team ahead in both being healthy and high performing. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a great resource, and I think it is going to be so helpful to many pastors. We'll link to the show no- in the show notes to where people can uh, sign up for that course. And just thank you so much for the time. This has been a great conversation. The time has gone really fast, and thank you for what you're doing and for your ministry. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to be here and really just love uh, investing in pastors and leaders. Well, thanks again to Lance Witt for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, and also send this episode to somebody you know who might benefit from listening to it. Also, make sure to download the show notes for this episode and every episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast, where we include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guest top content on churchleaders.com and around the web. As always, if you have ideas for how we can improve this podcast or guests you'd love to hear us talk to, email us at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.